Good evening, comrades, and welcome to tonight's class of the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. The People's School is part of a long line of party-sponsored schools, uh, from the Jefferson School of Social Science to the People's School of Marxist Studies to today's People's School of Marxist-Leninist Studies. Uh, this is a party-initiated school, uh, not a party school, which is great because it allows us to have a wide range of uh, perspectives and opinions, uh, but there is a lot of uh, PCUSA comrades here and you can definitely uh, bounce off of them to get an idea of what uh, they think about these issues. Uh, tonight, we're gonna be studying uh, the Black October event of 1993, which was the uh, Yeltsinite attack on the Soviet Supreme. And this is of course after uh, the counter-revolution, but it is very important uh, to us as communists in our history. So before I go ahead and get started on the first uh, bit of our uh, class, I want to go ahead and hand the floor to Comrade General Secretary Angelo. You have the floor. Yeah, comrades. I'm glad everyone is able to make it tonight. Thank you for coming. I find this class is going to be very informative. A lot of the younger people don't know about what happened. I, I lived through this when this happened in 1993. And it was very traumatic for many of us communists. It was very traumatic. However, we set up the US Friends of Soviet People in 1993. Um, that organization exists till today and it works closely with the PCUSA uh, in solidarity with the communists that are in the former Soviet Union and those who wanna bring back the Soviet Union as a socialist state. What's going on right now in the Ukraine is indicative of all that. I want everyone to follow the Ukraine and follow with the communists in, in the former Soviet Union, uh, in Russia and the Ukraine. Look at their positions and we follow their positions, which is, this is an anti-fascist struggle. What's going on now, NATO is a continuation of the Fourth Reich. You heard about the Third Reich, this is the Fourth Reich. That's exactly what it is. All these countries, 15, 16 countries trying to dismember, they're only doing that. Why do you think they're doing it only in Russia? Because the communist movement in Russia is alive. You know that's the second biggest party is the communist party. And if it wasn't for the oligarchs and their control of the mass media, the communists would be in power in Russia right now. And the capitalists know this, and that's why they're opposed to what's going on in the Ukraine. And that's why they're supporting this guy Zelensky, who was a nobody five years ago. He was a nobody. Why are they giving him billions of dollars? Billions, why? Because they know more about what's going on than even some of the people on the left in the communist movement. They have no idea. They think this is war, one against imperialism. No, it has nothing to do with one imperialism against the other. It has to do with the fourth right. That's what NATO is. Everything Hitler tried to do, they're trying to succeed. So I hope you enjoyed tonight's class. Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm gonna say a little something about Yeltsin in, himself. Okay, so this guy, he joined the Communist Party in his youth, right? But you know, when he wrote his memoirs or something like this, and he said, I joined to get a career. You know, like uh, typically they would get cars and apartments and things like that, benefits, right? If you're 
high in the, um, in the Communist Party. So that's why he did it, not because of his convictions, not because of ideology. And another thing that's uh, very important, you know, and it, it's like, it's terrible. He dissolved the Communist Party of, uh, of uh, the Soviet Union. He dissolved it. Guess when? November 6, 1991. And if you know, it's the eve of the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, November 7th, right? And historically, from the very beginning, with Stalin, Molotov, with Khrushchev, with every leader, they would give an important speech on the eve of that anniversary, on November 6th. So Yeltsin picks that date to say, okay, from today on, the Communist Party is banned. That's in 91. Okay, just so you know about him. That's all. So our first uh, section for tonight is going to be a YouTube video uh, from Russia Today about Black October in 1993. This is called Tanks in Moscow, Blood on the Streets. So here's the video. These images of tanks firing at the Supreme Soviet building were seen all around the world. It was the climax of the confrontation between the Russian parliament and President Boris Yeltsin. Two years after the collapse of the USSR, thousands found themselves way below the poverty line. Yeltsin gang on trial, that's what protesters say. Economist Ruslan Kosbulatov, then Soviet's Supreme Speaker, openly claimed that Yeltsin was behind the economic disaster. These disagreements took root above all. In his expansionist ambition, his longing for dictatorial power and tyranny. Deputies headed by Ruslan Kosbulatov and Alexander Ruskoy blocked the president's initiative. On September 21st, Yeltsin issued Decree 1400 to dissolve the parliament in order to get more power and lead the country out of economic crisis and continue economic reform. Deputies issued a decree to end Yeltsin's authority and prepared to defend Russia's White House. That's what the Soviet Supremes called. Supporters of the parliament joined the deputies with a large arms supply and built barricades. Yeltsin ordered electricity, hot water, and phone lines cut. On October 3rd, tens of thousands of Supreme Soviet supporters took to the streets the protesters broke through the police lines around the White House. The police fired live rounds to disperse the crowd, but failed to stop demonstrators who broke through the cordons. Alexander Rutskoy urged the crowd to storm the Ostankino TV scene and go live on air to spread their message. 
the military fought off the attacks, leaving 46 demonstrators dead. Tanks of the Taman Division loyal to President Yeltsin stormed Moscow. On the morning of October 4th, troops began to storm the Parliament building. In the afternoon, the Alpha Counterterrorism Unit began taking surrendered deputies out of the building. The White House defenders were dispersed by special police forces. At least 187 people died and more than 400 were wounded during the days of protest. Three months after the crisis of October, Russia saw a new constitution installed. The president's powers were expanded considerably. The post of vice president was abolished and deputies authority was reduced. The State Duma, Russia's new parliament, gave amnesty to the principal players of the events of October 1993. And that's the end of our first section. So we're gonna take our uh, first round of questions and comments. Uh, uh, I think uh, what's happening uh, globally and uh, with the correlation of forces throughout uh, developing uh, countries going more favorable for China and Chinese, uh, North Korean and Russian policies with their uh, economic policies, infrastructure policies, and the decline of uh, the transatlantic uh, countries, uh, you know, in those developing sectors. I think there is a great chance that uh, the Putin government will be weakened and that uh, something similar to the Great October Socialist Revolution will materialize uh, in Russia because in military terms, there is no way that Ukraine, no matter uh, the supplies and the financial assistance may be, that it would defeat uh, the Russian Federation military. There is no way. I, I don't think so. And what's happening is that most of the military hardware supplied to, to Ukraine have already been smashed. Most of it, uh, like about 90%, according to one of the military uh, officers. So I think uh, the country will stay in decline for many, many decades because reconstruction is not good, will not be easy in Ukraine. And Russia has already an annexed a significant uh, portion of uh, Ukraine. So it's going to be a very complicated international situation, and I hope Angelo would have something about you know to say about it. Yeah, comrades, I just want to say that um, without in analyzing Russia today, you have to understand that 1993 is pivotal. Without 1993, there would be no Putin. Putin is a compromise between the Yeltsinite counter-revolutionaries and the National Salvation Front, which was the alliance of communists, patriotic forces, and even like some right-wing forces which opposed Yeltsin. Um, and it's also very interesting to note, comrades, that um, 
The first time the words, quote unquote, red brown alliance were used was when, Ye when Yeltsin talked about the people who were defending the Soviet, the Supreme Soviet and the parliament. So whenever liberals, you know, use the word against you, red brown alliance, know where, know where that comes from. That comes from Boris Yeltsin and his austerity policies, which killed an excess of like, I think, three to six million Russians died during like the 1990s, thanks to the policies and the criminal state leadership of Yeltsin. Um, in terms of what's going on in Ukraine, Ukraine, even though it may look bleak right now, and the media is telling us that Ukraine's winning, Ukraine is not going to win this war. Russia has mobilized an overwhelming force, and it's only a matter of time before the Russian forces get to the front line and the Ukrainian military offensive, which is being actually led by Western mercenaries and Western intelligence, is going to die down. The Ukrainians don't have enough skilled personnel, material, or men to counter the Russians when seconds. the Russians fully mobilize. Um, that'll be all, Cameron. Yeah, I just wanted to say quick, you, you see what, in that from that video, the attack on the parliament, and then they change the constitution, given... Um, given almost all the power to Yeltsin himself. And this was hailed as a, a great move for democracy at the time. And you could see the similarities with every move the U.S. makes in there. Every imperialist move they make, whether it's Venezuela or Ukraine, or uh, they make, they're trying to pro-democracy protest in Cuba. That they, it's all the same thing. They want to put somebody that is going to take all the power for themselves and, and open up this land to finance capital to take everything. That's all. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say this is really um, making me think a lot about um, like how I would uh, think about the Soviet Union falling as being kind of like the death of a loved one. And then kind of there's like a black spot in uh, like my knowledge of history. It's like as if uh, when they the propaganda out of the West, uh, the end of history had occurred. Um, like history did not stop. And, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, that's um kind of something that, that's uh, almost like a self-criticism, I guess, that, that I never really looked into with the politics or the development of uh, post-Soviet Russia. Thank you for that. And I definitely agree. That was one of the things that we brought up on Tuesday is that there was a commentator in uh, the early 90s after the counter-revolution that said, uh, history is over. Uh, history, you know, this is the end of history. Uh, and it's not, uh, we're still living through it and it still connects to our present uh, moment in time. I wanna second what was saying. If you pay attention to the videos of October 4th and 3rd, 93, you're gonna see that the protesters, the people that rushed to protect the Soviet Supreme, they had our flag, the red flag, hammer and sickle, the USSR flag, and also, they had the white, yellow, and black flag of the Tsarist uh, era, okay? How come? Because it was a union, a patriotic union of, if you will, uh, us with Russian patriots to defend what was left of the Soviet era, that is the planned economy. That's what they were after at the time, okay? And it might seem strange, but not so much, because during the Great Patriotic War, Stalin welcomed all the Tsarist officers of the white armies who had fled to Europe. He welcomed them to come back and help the Red Army to fight the Third Reich. So now we're fighting the Fourth Reich. And in fact, it was the Fourth Reich already in 1993. 
Yeltsin was just basically a lapdog of Clinton, of the West. Okay, so everything comes together. Yeah, and speaking of Yeltsin, as a native of like the DC region, I just want to share a couple stories. Um, in the 90s, Yeltsin came to visit Washington extensively. He, he, he and Clinton were basically drinking buddies. I mean, there's stories like that I hear around town um, that Yeltsin actually like was such an incompetent statesman that like after a, a drinking binge with Clinton, he would wander the streets of DC around K Street, around 18th Street. It's hilarious when you think of it, but this was a statesman. And he would wander around the streets of DC you know, half-dressed, looking for pizza before the Secret Service would find him and then get him back to, you know, the White House area. The, like, this isn't... And this is the person who destroyed his motherland. He destroyed his motherland. And this criminal wrecker, you know, came to the U.S. and got drunk and acted a fool. And the Russian people suffered all the way through it. And it doesn't end in 1993. Um, we tried to get Yeltsin out again in 1996 with the presidential elections, which the communists were the leading opposition. And Zhuganov would have won those elections if it wasn't for the interference of uh, Clinton and the U.S. State Department and covert operations that if you want to talk about rigged elections, everyone talks about Russian interference in U.S. elections. You know, we did that to them, but we actually did it. You know, we interfered, we rigged their elections in 96. That's all I want to say. Yeah, and it made me think too, um, uh, when you look at the relationship between Yeltsin and Clinton and just how inappropriate it can get, it, it kind of reminds you of uh, the whole Russiagate narrative that they tried to push about uh, Trump and Putin when they really weren't that close. It was just engineered by this sort of neoliberal regime, kind of as a, a prelude to this Ukraine uh, conflict. And Yeltsin and, and Clinton's uh, friendship was a, a lot more destructive, especially for the Russian people. I think that phase, that phase of international relations is very complicated because uh, I think the Russian leadership uh, led by Gorbachev was hoodwinking uh, 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 by uh, Reagan because Reagan promised that he was not going to move one inch towards the uh, Soviet borders or now Russian Federation. And I think he really cheated the Soviet leadership. So Yeltsin, he's a very drunkard, he's an al alcoholic and lumpen proletariat. It's very difficult to, to say he was a fascist uh, in the lines, in the traditions of uh, Mussolini or Hitler. He was a very muddle-headed, confused person. But I think most of the problems arose because the Transatlantic countries represented by United States cheated Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin followed uh, on his foothills. But I really do not think Boris Yeltsin represented uh, international fascism uh, like NATO and the United States. I, I really don't think so. I'm going to share uh, a PDF uh, that is the protection of the House of Soviets uh, in October, days of uh, 1993, through the eyes of eyewitnesses. This is from the Russian Communist Workers' Party website. It was roughly translated into English. Uh, by our comrade. I had read this on Tuesday, and so I'm going to go ahead and do it again. It is a rough reading because of the translation, um, and so it may sound a little bit clunky, uh, but we'll get through it, and then we'll get to another round of questions and comments. So it starts off, yes, 
Those who live through these days will never forget them. People and groups and singly walking to the house of the Soviets, past the skyscraper on Vostania Square, past garbage containers with the inscriptions, a box for Yeltsin, a box for Chubase, etc. Down some long wooden stairs along yellow autumn leaves. People crowding on Freedom Square, a lot of multicolored banners. The posters are both pathetic and humorous. Our own vodka lover would not have won votes without Yakunin's beard and without Bonner's mustache. Smoke from the fires around which the defenders of Soviet power are warming themselves. We communists were not deceived. We understood that in reality, only a form remained of Soviet power, an essence. It broke already when the state went from, from a state from a proletarian one became a nationwide one, and finally perished after the counter-revolution of 1991. Gathered at the walls of the white building of the late Brezhnev construction, solemnly called the House of Soviets, they defended, in fact, only the idea and symbol of Soviet power, but this was not enough. We understood perfectly well that what was happening in those days was not our last and decisive. It was not for nothing that Lasov's tricolors hovered over both warring camps. It was a fight between two clans of the bourgeoisie, the liberal comprador and the nationally oriented. By and large, both are worse, but the power of the compradors will lead to a much greater suffering for the common people and to greater destruction of the domestic economy. This must be taken into account. And one more consideration, probably the main thing, the people took to the streets. It was not a majority, but a small part of it. But since people came out and with a generally progressive goal to overthrow the Yeltsinists, it means that the communists should be with them. Familiar faces come to mind. The fiery Boris Gunko, Anatoly Krushko, Viktor Anplov, Vladimir Gusev, Boris Korev. Almost everyone who is familiar with that era knows these people. And who remembers, for example, Ekaterina Pintas, an elderly, she was then about 70, little woman who spent all the cold autumn nights of the siege on the square in front of the house of Soviets. She cut bread and sausage and fed the militias. When her comrades called her home phone, and there were no cell phones then, the shrill voice of the petty bourgeois daughter-in-law was heard in the receiver. How do I know where the devil is on the barricades? Or Mitrofan Koltoyevsky, the then secretary of the Gagarin primary organization of the RKRP, a construction worker, a former Afghan officer, absolutely courageous, absolutely brave, absolutely disinterested. That September, he had severe bronchitis. But after learning about Yeltsin's decree number 1400, Mitya grumbled, and it won't let you get sick and infection. And with a high temperature, he went to fight. He was on duty, not in the building of the House of Soviets, but on the street from the side of the embankment, sick and the cold autumn wind. He did not have weapons. The combatants from the RKRP and Labor Russia were not given weapons, although there were weapons in the building. The class essence of the bourgeoisie was also felt here. The besieged Bernatspats, uh, the editor of Leninsky put newspaper from uh, Olsoye Sibirskoye 
So wittily shortened the name Bourgeois National Patriots of their opponents, the Burdens, abbreviation of the same author. And they were less afraid than those who came to protect the people, even though it was in the building. During the storming of the House of Soviets, Koltoivskaya miraculously survived. When on October 6th, barely alive from hunger and fatigue, he reached the apartment of his comrades. He did not ask for a sip of water or a piece of bread. He asked for a pencil and paper and began to draw. Here is the House of Soviets. Here is our barricade. So between them, an armored personnel carrier passed and stood. And my friend and I have one captured police baton for two. What was to be done? Getting into a fight is an empty suicide. We had to leave. He made excuses for being alive. How many heroes actually died then? 15,000 or five? This will probably never, this we will probably never know. A column of black smoke, black soot on the upper floors of a white building will forever remain an ominous symbol of the triumph of the bourgeoisie. But what at that moment remained from the Soviet power, the Soviet people did not surrender without a fight. Just as the powerful performances of the left, primarily the RKRP, the PKK, Labor Russia, over the past two years did not give the Yeltsin bourgeois clique the opportunity to claim that their counter-revolutionary coup in 1991 was met with universal approval. The voice of the protest was clearly audible. The honor of the communists was saved. Black October, 1993, blockade, cordon, frozen riot police with pewter eyes, inspirational faces of comrades, Makashov dropping the tricolor from the balcony of the town hall, trucks and buses with brave men leaving to storm Ostankino, an old woman in a gray beret, whom some guy carefully helped get into such a bus, bouquets of scary barbed wire cut into pieces, Bruno spirals, the roar of tank guns, black smoke over the black frame of the White House. Those who did not surrender burned in it, not on their knees. Our grief, our pride, remember, V. Ivanov and V. Kamunarova. And this is from the editor. Burning, shuddering from explosions of shells from the tank guns, the House of Soviets will forever remain a symbol of the bloody baptism that Russian capitalism arranged for the working people of our country. The opponents of capitalism were the Soviet people who gathered at the bourgeois parliament, which was already in fact the parliament, which the head of the bourgeois dictatorship Yeltsin canceled. But those present were not participants in the dismantling of the two branches of bourgeois power on the question of how and at what pace to carry out capitalist reforms. They were the defenders of Soviet power, the Soviet Union, and socialist system. It was in this capacity that they rose to the fight. And that is precisely why they were terrible to the bourgeois regime, which attacked them with such bestial fascist hatred. Bestial fascist hatred, which the Kremlin today condemns in the Ukrainian Nazis. Glory to the real Soviet people, in spite of all the black forces that fought for the power of the working people to the end. Sometimes sowing separates from seedlings a considerable time, but the seedlings that bring the harvest will still and certainly break through and sprout. To the cause for which our comrades died in Black October, 
this applies to an absolute extent. And with that, we're gonna go ahead and uh, stop again for a round of questions and comments. Comrades, make no mistake, the people that were murdered in the building, they died by fire, majority of them. These are us, we are them. We could have been there, I could have been there if I had stayed in the Soviet Union. I would have been in that building. This would have been us. So don't think that there's a separation between the murdered communists that were in their building and us. It is us. And let me tell you who was in that building. I watched it all. CNN had it continuously. Every inch of fighting in the streets. CNN had the, a woman there from Iran who was new. She has her own show now on CNN. Can't remember her name. But that was her premiere when she started reporting on that event. Um, poor, that was her name, I think. Um, and she was just starting then, just starting. What I thought was interesting was that everybody that came to the building, old, old people and young, young people, priests, priests of the church, these were people who were happy with Soviet life. They wanted to preserve Soviet life. That's why they were there, very simply. I wanted to mention that. There were all types of people who wanted to preserve Soviet way of life. Those that wanted to destroy it wanted to end Soviet way of life. And that's why Clinton put his hand around Yeltsin and took a picture and said, you're doing a good job. This was Hillary Clinton's husband. Hillary Clinton, who recently ran for office, who the so-called communists in the CPUSA supported. Remember Too that, much. they supported her. So let's not forget our history. Thank you. That's uh, that's insane that Christiane Amanpour was, uh, that's how she got her start. Uh, as, yeah, she's always been a uh, tool for imperialism all over the world. Um, but anyways... I guess um, the question that I have is um, the people of Russia. I know that the reason why Putin originally came to power was because of how brutal the Yeltsin dictatorship was. I mean, is it was it one of those things? I don't know that period in history too well in terms of like the election leading up to uh, Putin after Yeltsin, but. Was it because of just how terrible everything was and just the absolute brutality that led to people just kind of putting all their faith in Putin? Can anybody answer that? Yeah. At that point in history, as Marx said, people play a positive role sometimes, and sometimes they play a negative role. That's Marxian uh, dialectics, straight. Nobody's all good or all bad. They all play a role. And how it affects the working class is what's important. And at that point, it was a guy who had been educated in the KGB, took a pledge in the KGB to protect the Soviet system. Then he turned, and who did he, who did he give allegiance to? Yeltsin. That's why Yeltsin anointed him. Now, Yeltsin could have picked anybody, but he anointed this guy, Putin. So it shows that he was already changing Putin. Now the situation is such that he has to change again. 
It's obvious what's going on in Russia right now. It's obvious that the West is trying to crush them and make them another Yugoslavia, which means destroy the federal, the, uh, the union and set up different little client states that they can control. And they did that in Yugoslavia. The Serbian government right now is a client state of the United States. We were gonna have an international anti-fascist conference in Belgrade. Well, they now, they disinvited the people, including our representative, Barry, Dr. Barry Latucci. So 97. this is, that just happened today. People were surprised about that. So things are constantly moving. Um, what's going on today in Russia, this new sense of patriotism is important for us as communists. It will help us. It will destroy the Fourth Reich, the NATO's attempt to use the Ukraine to fragment Two the minutes. former Soviet republics into small little fiefdoms. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I do just want to go ahead and echo something you said, because I want people to know this. Uh, Putin was anointed by Yeltsin. Uh, matter of fact, I, I believe on the eve of the new millennium, so one of the last events of the uh, 20th century, uh, the last event of the 20th century, I've been people uh, cowering in their houses because of the Y2K myth. I would like to correct the image that Putin was just pro Yeltsin. That wasn't, that isn't actually true. Putin was of the nationalist camp and disagreed with the allowing Western capitalists to operate on Russian soil. And so the first, one of the major changes that Putin made was that all, all of the Western capitalists that were either in Russia operating there or overseas within the United States had their property nationalized and under control of the national oligarchs. And especially all of the CIA advisors were thrown out of the government. Yeah, I wanted to echo what um, Comrade Angelo was saying and a couple others, mainly because <clears throat> with what is going on currently, I want to I want to express the overwhelming level of patriotism that is flooding across the lands of Russia and the new republics. It's 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 rather good to see, and it's something that's going to just get stronger as the war rages on, because now it's being fueled violently uh, uh, by by the West, <clears throat> and with the overwhelming anti-Russian sentiment that is all throughout Europe and North America now, it's now just agitating the Russian masses to become even more patriotic. And utilizing this, we are seeing the overwhelming uh, group of people partaking in the Russian masses, standing side by side to them as they are openly patriotic is the communist party, the communist members of, uh, of the society of those regions. And this is something that is taking very strong influence. The communist symbol and the communist flags are now flying pretty much damn near everywhere all across 
the region that is in the open combat zone and <clears throat> in uh, Russia as well. The send the, uh, the the pro communist sentiment of what we have been documenting that has been steadily increasing in Russia is now blowing up even faster. I think the very uh, catching phrase by Karl Marx, you know, who, who says that the imperialists and the exploiters are their own grave diggers. I think that is what is happening across the board. In the Warsaw Pact countries, although the leadership betrayed the idea, the ideals of socialism, those those nations were very viable uh, socio-economic uh, uh, and cultural entities at that time with the Warsaw Pact. But uh, their experience is very negative. Uh, the the, the leadership of those countries are anti-labor. You know, they they, uh, they arrest the labor leaders, socialist and communist leaders. So I think they are getting radicalized uh, in the process. So in this equation, the communists of the Warsaw Pact countries, who are former uh, Warsaw Pact and Russian Federation, they are going to gain momentum. They are not going to trust the NATO countries, the European Union, and their leader of uh, North America. So even in North America and Europe, so many people are, are getting radicalized because their economics, their economics, uh, economies have declined. So I think overall, on a global plane, I think uh, socialist uh, ideas, progressive ideas, will take root, and uh, it will be up to the communists to organize and uh, galvanize the situation and push towards, I mean, the assumption of power by a united front of progressive forces and anti-imperialist forces. So I think it is a plus for us and a big, big minus for them. Yeah, and in the liberated territories, um, in Zaporozhye, in Zaporozhye, Kherson, um, Donetsk, Luhansk, um, the Ukrainian, that's where the Ukrainian communists are right now. Um, the Communist Party of Ukraine, our comrades in Ukraine, um, they're propping back up in these liberated territories. Um, under the Kiev regime, which is run by Zelensky, NATO, the, the SBU, which is the Gestapo of Ukraine, um, the Communist Party is banned. Um, their Communist Party activists are forced to operate clandestinely and underground. Um, the Kanonovich brothers, we still haven't heard from them. They're still within SBU custody. Um, those are two young people, the Komsomol of the Communist Party of Ukraine, our version of the League of Young Communists. Um, they are still in custody of the Ukrainian secret police. So even if you don't necessarily like necessarily like the leadership of Putin or you don't agree with, you know, Putin's party, just realize that like, you know, for Ukrainian communists, it is a choice of li life or death. Either the Ukrainian regime goes or they go. It's I, I couldn't put it in clean in clearer words. Thank you for that. One of the things I want to say, too, is that you can definitely tell uh, that what is happening, uh, Russia's special military operation in Ukraine and, and going against the fascists is the right thing uh, when you see uh, fascists, liberals, and anarchists all lining up behind Ukraine. And I see this all the time. I, I, I have uh, friends that are anarchists uh, personally that still to this point say that Russia is the fascist one, Ukraine is a democracy, 
And they even say that the Euromaidan was some sort of successful anarchist revolution when in reality, it was a successful uh, fascist uh, revolution, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I just want to say that uh, General Secretary is extremely based for calling NATO the Fourth Reich. That is exactly what it is. That's a very accurate comparison. Uh, uh, it truly is the finance capitalists coming out of the woodworks and putting their hands on things, hand on. And also, Ephraim, absolutely. Uh, um, I forgot exactly what you said, but I remember what I was going to say. It's almost as if time is not linear and something from the future is haunting us. Yeah, I'm going to second what you just said. Uh, that fourth right comparison, it was uh, said by Putin in his, in his speech a few days ago, and the next day by Zhuganov, our comrade uh, from the Communist Party. Now, I want to mention something. Uh, you know, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in June 41, right? That same day, Molotov made a speech and he said, we are now fighting the great patriotic war, okay? So basically what we have now is a re-edition of the Great Patriotic War. And that's a difference, if you will, between Putin and Yeltsin. Yeltsin was not a patriot. He was a lap dog of NATO, of Western imperialism. And here is a, um, a story. Is in 96, like Max was saying, there was elections. Zhuganov was well ahead, but uh, Boris, you know, called his bud buddy Bill and he said, can you help me out because I'm about to lose? And he said, why don't you delay your NATO expansion? Because it makes me look like a traitor. So he admitted that, by the way. And uh, you can do that after the election. And Clinton said, yes, of course, my brother. So he did. OK, so um, uh, Yeltsin was not a patriot. Putin is a patriot. And that's why communists are uniting with Putin, even though he's a capitalist, because he's a patriot. And now they're fighting the Fourth Reich. And that's correct. Later on, we might just overthrow Putin if we're strong enough. Yes. But for now, we're fighting the Fourth Reich. Uh, what we have now is, for this third section of our class is an article from the NSA archive that talks about the relationship uh, between Clinton and Yeltsin. The declassified telcons and memcons of early Clinton-Yeltsin conversations show instant chemistry between the two leaders, genuine warmth and optimism, and an incredibly rich agenda on which Russia and the US agreed to cooperate. Clinton mostly set the agenda, while Yeltsin eager to build a genuine partnership with America, enthusiastically agreed to work together with him. Clinton was deeply committed to Russia's transformation into a democracy and market economy, as well as to its full integration into the Western world. Another top US priority was to safely manage the post-Soviet regathering of nuclear arsenal back to Russia and to help it to dismantle and secure weapons and fissile materials, which was accomplished in the framework of the Nunugar programs. Given this setting, Yeltsin 
with his resume of a democratically so-called elected Russian leader and a defender of democracy during the coup of 91, seemed like an ideal partner who could deliver on all US priorities. According to Strobe Talbot, some of Clinton's advisors were concerned about Yeltsin's unwillingness to consult and compromise with the parliament and advised Clinton to focus on principles and process, not personalities. The president, however, was committed to Yeltsin as a personification of the revolutionary change and responded that this was a zero sum thing. This perception only intensified during Yeltsin's final showdown with the uh, Soviet Supreme in the final days of September 93. According to Ambassador Thomas Pickering, Yeltsin sent Foreign Minister Andrei Kozirev to notify four key Western ambassadors about his intention to dissolve the parliament and call for new elections. In Clinton's first phone call to Yeltsin, immediately after the letter, uh, the letter issued Decree 1400, dissolving parliament and setting a date for early elections and a constitutional referendum, the US president expressed his full support and accepted Yeltsin's assurances that there would be no bloodshed, sure, and the reform would move faster now than there would be no obstacles. US support for Yeltsin remained unwavering all through the confrontation. And after the Russian president issued the order to storm the parliament after initial violence on the part of opposition. On the morning of October 4th, Muscovites awakened to the awful sight of the burning parliament building, the White House, they had defended during the putsch in August 91, where Yeltsin had stood on a tank and led the so-called democratic forces. On October 5th, the day after the bloodshed, Clinton called Yeltsin and con congratulated him for his handling of the situation. He didn't ask about the loss of life. Even stronger support was expressed by Secretary of State Warren Christopher while visiting in mid-October, who practically lauded Yeltsin for his actions during the crisis. Documents show that the Clinton administration saw no alternatives to Yeltsin and was prepared to support him no matter what. The situation grew out of the extreme personification of US-Russia policy, but also from the black and white picture the Yeltsin camp presented of the political situation in Russia, painting his opponents as fascist and unreformed communists. Thank you. In fact, it was the same Supreme Soviet that was elected in the lauded free elections of 1990 that elected Yeltsin as chairman and that granted him emergency powers to implement the radical economic reforms in October 91. As the year 93 progressed and the political confrontation in Russia deepened, the US administration dealt exclusively with the Yeltsin camp and came to regard the opposition as their Russian 
interlocutors presented them. But most importantly, the stakes were very high. Yeltsin was a good partner who was willing to play on US terms. And any alternative, even democratically elected, was deemed unlikely to be as cooperative or reliable. The Clinton administration was therefore highly invested in Yeltsin. And as Ambassador Pickering said, he told Strobe Talbot, you've got no other choice than to support Yeltsin and hope that the December elections would be free and fair. Not all, the, not all actors on the US side shared this opinion. Chargé d'affaires James Collins cables show a more nuanced reading of the crisis and a deep concern about the fairness of the elections and the authoritarian potential of Yeltsin's new constitution, which Collins calls half-baked. The Pickering oral history also points to differences of opinion within the embassy. These disagreements did not seem to affect Clinton's consistent support for Yeltsin's handling of the opposition. US backing remained constant after the disastrous election results in which Yeltsin's party received only 15% of the vote and the constitution barely passed a referendum. The system that emerged was essentially super presidential, which didn't worry most senior US officials as long as a true Democrat, yeah, in their view, held the post of president. The last document in today's published selection, um, selection is an excerpt of an oral history interview with Yeltsin Defense Minister Pavel Grashev, conducted by Peter Aven and Alfred Koch. Grashev's account of events provides a graphic picture of how the Yeltsin camp viewed the opposition and excuse me, and their methods of dealing with it. It also gives great insight into the complete complexity of the situation and the role of the armed forces. The Clinton administration at the time saw Yeltsin as a guarantor of Russia's democratic transition and thus viewed the outcome of the crisis as a victory for so-called democratic forces. However, unfortunate the loss of life was. Many Russians Democrats, however, considered the events of 93 as a turning point from democracy to an increasingly paternalistic and autocratic rule by Yeltsin and his successor. That would be Putin, by the way. 25 years later, the controversy over the constitutional crisis of 93 is not over and final judgment will have to await among other things, the declassification of top-level Russian documents. I think uh, in the correlation of forces in the, in the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, our uh, pivotal interest must be to, to concretely comprehend and analyze the role of the former Communist Party of the Soviet Union. If they have uh, gotten more radicalized, I mean, uh, or embraced, you know, the ideology of the Soviet Union, but we don't have any details about that. 
So I think it is high time that we address that very, very critical uh, matter for mankind as a whole, for the entire proletarian movement the world over. So they're uh, coming out stronger against uh, the nationalists and the patriotic forces or even equally important and significant in terms of international affairs. I think that that will help us directly in the United States. I just wanted to uh, point out that uh, the events in the Soviet Union from 1989 through the 1990s, um, they're not just something over there. Um, The destruction of Soviet power had a direct effect on the condition of the working class in the United States. As the Soviet power was being destroyed, Capitalists in the United States started cracking down on the working classes. There was no one internationally to defend us anymore. And we have it in the statistics, in the economic statistics, that the, uh, the, the economic well-being of the working class declined rapidly in 1993. And we're putting this out in, uh, in publications. But it's, uh, it's to be kept in mind that when, with the fall of the Soviet Union, was the fall of working-class power worldwide, including in the USA. Thank you. Yeah, and I want to add to that, that not only is it the uh, fall of working-class power, uh, you know, everywhere and including in the USA, uh, it was also the moment when American imperialism was empowered to go ahead and do things that before it might not have done because there was a bulwark against it in the world. I know that that isn't necessarily uh, related to the Black October event, but, you know, I want to get it in people's heads that, you know, would things like Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen or all the different military interventions and things that we've done since then uh, have happened the same way uh, if the counter-revolution hadn't occurred? Maybe I missed it in the reading, but I was wondering, what was the attitude of the Russian military at the time in uh, 93 and even in uh, 91? Was it apathy? just following orders, vindictive, because they just got back from Afghanistan a few years before. I'm wondering where they were sitting at ideologically. Was even generals thinking, because the average age of a general is probably like mid-50s or so, that would put them like around Khrushchev era where they got their ideology. So I'm wondering what the attitude of the military was towards being ordered to fire on their own people. Yes, okay. You know, it kind of started in August of 91. In August of 91, some of our comrades tried to put a stop to that madness, the destruction of the USSR, okay? They uh, arrested Gorbachev, who was in the Crimea, but they made a mistake. They did not arrest Yeltsin. And because of that, Yeltsin was kind of popular already in in, uh, Russia uh, through the late 80s because he had been like a rightist and uh, you know, you had all the West with him in the back and all that. So he, was, he had some kind of popularity. And because they did not arrest him, he went to the Soviet Supreme in 91, in August, and he stood on top of a tank and played, you know, like the savior and all that, right? Okay. Uh, had they arrested him together with Gorbachev, there might have been a chance. So the military kind of see which way the wind was going to blow. If they had been, the, our comrades had been more radical, 
more hardcore, okay, if they had hardened their heart, then the military would have gone with them. But sadly, they were too soft, sort of speak. And uh, it didn't work out. And then the military went the other side. And the same thing in 93. At first, they, they went with Yeltsin after, after they saw that he had the upper hand. Okay. So that's what happened. Uh, in the previous reading, it said that Yeltsin's party only had about 15% approval. Um, and yet a constitutional referendum, which would give Yeltsin even more power passed with the majority. So I was wondering if anybody knew how that would happen when his party was so unpopular. They purged the parliament. They dissolved. Um, they dissolved the Supreme Soviet, comrade, and they established the Saint, this the Duma, the Duma, comrades, that was around during the Tsarist times and that was around during the provisional government. So they complete, and they also there was a ton of like political repression and at right after the 1993 con um, events in 1993, there was a lot of like just political repression of our comrades and like opposition didn't really emerge in strength again until like 1996 almost. Um, they, they eventually they did pardon um, those who, as it said in the video, they did pardon those involved in Black October, which fought for to defend the Supreme Soviet. But that was just for national stability. Russia was on the brink of a civil war with Black October. Um, it was getting to very like heavy points, like going over lines that even Yeltsin was concerned about crossing, which would be a civil war. Um, so yeah, they had the advantage of having the military behind them. They dissolved the Supreme Soviet and they reestablished the Duma comrades. You know, what Hitler couldn't do with Operation Barbarossa and his genocidal war against the peoples of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin and these criminals did. Thank you. Yeah, and that just that just goes to add to just how uh, evil Yeltsin was to the Soviets and to the people of Russia. Our question at the People's School is: What should the role of communists be in the current struggles that are going on? Should the role of communists ever be at this point on the same side as the ultra right? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves, because I don't think some people answer that question. Is the world today the same as 1920? Or is it the same as 1937? I see it closer to 37. What changed in the world communist movement in 1937? The seventh, if I have it correctly, the seventh Congress of the Common Turn. What did the seventh Congress of the Common Turn say? What did it say? These are all the communist parties on the planet that came together. What did they conclude? That the issue today is not class against class. That the issue today is a united front against what? Against something called fascism. That did not exist in a national, international sense in 1920, during the time of the revolution in Russia. That was class against class. But now we have something different from 1937 onward. The job of communists is to fight fascism first. That's our job. 
Then once we win against fascism, then we can go fight a war class against class. But we cannot do that without the help of other forces that are opposed to fascism. We need that. That's exactly what 1937 and the common turn taught us. So anybody in the communist movement who doesn't see that, they are either ultra left, and you know where that leads us, or they're basically social democratic right. And you know where that leads us. So that should be the, the big question today. This is not 1920, it's definitely not 1917. This is more 1937. What just happened in Europe? There was elections. Who won the elections in Italy, a former fascist state? Who won the elections? The right wing, the ultra right. Who won the elections in Sweden, which claims to be one of be NATO? They wanna join NATO. Who won those elections? The ultra right. That is what's going on. We had an international conference, comrades, by the anti-fascist from World War II was sponsoring. And this thing was scuttled by the West. Why do you think they're afraid of this? Because they have embraced fascism today, the bourgeoisie. Who is their big ally? Is it oligarch Russia or is it fascist Ukraine? Think about that. It is Remember. fascist Ukraine that is the ally of, the, of NATO. And that's where we're at today, comrades. Let's make sure we know where we're going. Otherwise, we're going to be dead. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be quick and mine's a bit nitpicky, but um, let's try, especially for those who are a little more advanced in theory, let's try not to give the enemy some ammunition. Uh, try not to refer to the uh, ending of the Soviet Union as a collapse, as I've actually learned in these classes before from General Secretary Angelo. A 1.5% increase a year is not a failed economy. That's it. I just, that's all. Thank you. Thank you for that. And yeah, that's one of the things that we pointed out on Tuesday uh, was to, you know, go ahead and refer to it as a counter-revolution, even dissolution, but not as a collapse, not as the fall of the Soviet Union. So what I'm about to share on the screen is there's going to be two uh, uh, memorandums of a telephone conversation between Yeltsin and President Clinton so that we can explore this uh, just a little bit more and we can uh, get an idea of what their conversations were like around the time of Black October. So this one is from September 21st, 1993. This is right before Black October, but it is after, uh, immediately after uh, Yeltsin uh, makes the speech uh, announcing his presidential decree 1400. So I'm gonna go ahead and read this. Uh, President Yeltsin, good evening, Bill. President Clinton, hello, Boris. I have just been briefed on your speech tonight and I wanted to call you right away to get your personal sense of what this step will mean for you, for the Russian political process and for reform. I wanna issue a public statement to state my support for you. But before I do, I wanted to hear from you how this affects your position and the process of reform in Russia. President Yeltsin. Bill, the Supreme Soviet has totally gone out of control. It no longer supports the reform process. They have become communists. We cannot no longer put up with that. For that reason, today I signed a decree on elections to a new democratic assembly to take place on December 11th and 12th. In that period, the Soviet Supreme and the Congress of Actions will not have any effect. 
everything will be governed by presidential decree. All the Democratic forces are supporting me. President Clinton, are the military and security services with you? President Yeltsin, both the military and the Ministry of Internal Affairs have come out in support of me. There is no disorder for the time being. There are about 300 people gathered, but they are dispersing. I think there will be no bloodshed. Let's see how that turned out. President Clinton, that's good. Your speech comes at an important time here. The Senate will act this week on a $2.5 billion assistance package for Russia and the other states. Secretary Christopher is with key members of the Congress now to underscore our continued support for the bill. Then we have some uh, classified sections on this. Uh, President Yeltsin, yes, of course, now the reforms will go faster. President Clinton, that's good. It will also be important for me to be able to tell the US people and the Senate that, th that you intend to pursue the elections in a fully democratic manner, that they will be free and fair and that the outcome will be observed by you and all other parties. It will be important to confirm publicly that is what you said and that is what you believe. President Yeltsin, absolutely, this will be the case. And I thank you for your support. President Clinton, let me ask you one question that I know the press will ask me today. I have heard that Rutskoy and Kazbulatov are claiming that they are being denied access to the press. Freedom of expression will be important during the elections. It will be important to be able to say that they proceeded really freely and democratically. Free access to the press is an important part of that. What are the facts from your point of view? And what is the connection to the election? President Yeltsin, this is not connected to the elections and nobody has forbidden them to talk to the press. I have made no such decisions. President Clinton, thank you. I intend to be in touch with our allies in Europe and Asia to underscore the importance of support for reform in Russia at this critical juncture. I just wanna say again, that you will have my support and the support of the American people. I will continue to push for the aid package. It will be important if you can confirm to us and to your own people that you are really going to continue the process of reform and that the elections will be free and fair. President Yeltsin, thank you for your support. I promise that the elections will be fully carried out in a democratic way without discrimination of any kind. Anybody who wants to take part will be able to do so. The reforms will go much faster now than in the past. The Supreme Soviet hindered reforms in the past. And I thank you for your support. The Russian people will never forget. President Clinton, I know you need your rest, but before you go, I wanted to ask you what the opposition will do. President Yeltsin, the opposition will try to not recognize what has happened, but the people will understand all of this, especially the intelligentsia. We don't wanna use force. Everything will take place peacefully. We do not in any circumstances want bloodshed. President Clinton, I thought it would be important to talk to you before I spoke to the press because the American people are standing with you and the Russian people. This conversation has helped. If you need to talk to me anytime in the next two days, I'll be available any time of the day or night. All the best. Thank you, Bill. This is President Yeltsin. Thank you, Bill. Then we should tell the press about our conversation. President Clinton. Yes, I will immediately issue a statement to the press. Good night. President Yeltsin. Thank you. I embrace you, Bill. End of conversation. And then I'm going to stop sharing just a second so that I can pull up the other 
article. Just give me one second here. All right, share my screen. This part is the memorandum of a telephone conversation on October 5th, 1993. Immediately following uh, the Black October event. So it starts off, President Yeltsin, Bill, good evening. It's good to hear your voice. President Clinton, good evening, Boris. I wanted to call you and express my support. I have been following events closely and have tried to support you as much as possible. I know this has been a difficult time for you and I wanted you to know, uh, or I wanted to know how you were doing. President Yeltsin, Bill, thank you very much for your support, which I knew and felt would be coming. Now that these events are over, we have no more obstacles to Russia's democratic elections and our transition to democracy in a market economy. The fascist organizations that have been active in these events have now been banned. So now I feel that all this would, will be fine. It's too bad that some people were killed, but this is the fault of those who were the first to open fire and acted in a provocative way. They brought to Moscow a gang of people from the Transdniester region the Riga O-M-O-N. These were special forces. They had them come here, gave them machine guns and grenade launchers, and had them fire on peaceful civilians. There was no other alternative than to use force against them. This was terrorism and banditry at work. I felt that the people supported me. Now that we all have this behind us, I plan to move forward in a strong way. President Clinton, what will your timetable be for the elections? Will you keep to the same schedule as you had planned? President Yeltsin, yes, the elections will be held December 11th as planned. But I also think that maybe in order to meet the desires expressed by other parties, we will consider holding early elections for the president simultaneously with the parliamentary elections. I'm not sure, but I may end up in the Guinness Book of World Records for standing for election three times in three years. President Clinton laughs, yes, I don't know what I'd do if I had to run for election three times in three years. You just seem to get stronger and better. President Yeltsin, yes, I guess I can't do much about it. And no real rivals to me are visible. My current rating stands at 90%. President Clinton, what is the prevailing attitude among the regional leaders? Can we do something through our aid package to send support out to the regions? President Yeltsin, that would be good. Those regional leaders who are supporting the opposition are now changing their support to us. But nonetheless, this kind of regional support would be very useful. President Clinton, I will have my people follow up with yours on that issue. Another question I have for you. How will you decide who can run in the elections after all that's happened and which papers and press outlets to open again? Will that be a problem for you? President Yeltsin, there will be no restrictions on the elections except for those who have been charged with crimes, who have incited murder or bodily harm. 39 people have now been killed on our side. President Clinton, what will happen to Rutskoy and Kasbulatov and other leaders who are in custody? President Yeltsin, the courts, the prosecutors, and an investigation will decide. We will not take part in this. For now, they are in custody and are being held in prison. If the court decides that they were not involved in murders or other crimes, if they issued no orders to shoot to kill, no, I'm certain that Rutskoy did give such orders, if they are not guilty, they should be acquitted. Or if they are found guilty, I could pardon them as long as they resolve to leave public life. In any case, this will all be done in a democratic fashion. 
President Clinton. That's good. In closing, I want to express my intention to continue to work on our bilateral relations. Energy Secretary O'Leary was recently in Moscow, and I know other cabinet secretaries are planning visits. Secretary Christopher will be there the third week of October. I assume you want us to press ahead on all of these projects. I'm also looking forward to my own visit in January. President Yeltsin, yes, Bill. I am very happy for the support you have getting, given. I appreciate the cooperation. And I am looking forward to the visit by you and your wife, Hillary, in January. President Clinton, great. I hope that you'll be able to get some rest now. I know it has been very hard for you, but you did everything exactly as you had to, and I congratulate you for the way you handled it. President Yeltsin, thank you for everything. I embrace you with all of my heart. And that's the end of that conversation. And so we'll go ahead and stop here for questions and comments. I did want to let the comrades here know that I did have a third uh, memorandum that I was going to read for these classes, but we don't have the time for it. There's basically one that continues to expand upon uh, Yeltsin and Clinton's friendship and the different economic deals that they were making uh, all the way up into 1998. Um, but we don't have the time to go over those. So I'll go ahead and take these uh, last round of questions for about um, well, about the next uh, eight or nine minutes here, because then we'll have to do a couple things before we wrap up the class. I think what is very shocking is that, uh, I don't know, uh, we can learn from Angelo's uh, remarks on this issue, that the major party like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union would be infiltrated by uh, such traitors like uh, Boris Yeltsin. You know, forget Clinton, because... Uh, I don't know, he's, uh, he's not an astute politician, he's a traitor to his class because he's from a poor background. So, but uh, Boris Yeltsin was there in the, in the bureaucracy uh, or uh, in the Communist Party uh, luminaries, and he was a respected uh, mayor of Moscow or something like that. So I think this is a very profound lesson for us in the United States that uh, we have to be very careful with infiltration by imperialist agents like uh, Boris Yeltsin and some some web in the United States, because they're totally they have nothing to do with communism, with communist ideology, but they stay in power and they assume uh, prominence, you know, in the rank and file in the party uh, organs. So I think we have to be extremely vigilant about uh, phony communists who can. Uh, potentially infiltrate uh, the ranks, like what the Isaac did with this group, is right. essentially like a, is a CIA agent or a FBI agent, but they masqueraded as uh, communists and stayed with us for quite some time. So we have to have uh, a process of really carefully evaluating our ranks and file, even within our ranks right now. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, I attended both classes this weekend and great stuff. I'm I'm really happy that I was able to be a part of the conversation. Um, a lot of things I didn't know, uh, actually the conversation between Clinton and Yeltsin, I hadn't read that yet. And that's just terrible. You know, this is the shame, you know, that this was even allowed to happen. And, um, you know, that, that's all really. Thanks, comrade. Um, a couple of things, and then I have a question. So um, 
if anyone hasn't seen the speech that uh, Putin uh, gave, I guess, um, as he not annexed, but um, basically signed those treaties for the new, uh, for those um, regions, you should look into that. It'll put a lot of context and kind of like how he's, you know, I wouldn't say dog whistling to communists, but definitely pushing like a different um, a narrative than what we, we get from the West. Um, and then also real quick, um, if I, I know that we, here in, a, in the US, we look at um, American fascism and, you know, we have kind of like clown fascists that are kind of hard to take seriously. Um, and, you know, as well, you know, is Trump a fascist? Well, it doesn't really matter because he um, coalesces around fascists. So that's kind of where we see that. And we, so it's kind of hard when we put that in the European um, aspect where um, you, you have really bad fascists. Um, you know, you see what happened in Italy and in Sweden, I believe. Um, and this is kind of a little bit of a personal editorial, but um, I was on a plane ride, um, plane, uh, and my the people next to me were Estonian, and they were um, uh, not really happy to learn that of uh, my Jewish heritage, and it was kind of scary, and I've never dealt with that in my entire life. Um, so just put that all in perspective. Uh, real quick, um, if anyone can answer about Yeltsin, about his connections with um, like the second economy, basically. Um, the corruption that went around, because I know the second economy was a big problem um, that was uh, kind of that the Soviet Union had to um, grapple with. Kind of in a political way. If someone wants to answer that, uh, okay, that's all. Yeah, what a tumultuous time the late 90s was. But in the lead up to that, I think we've talked about this in other classes was the black market in the Soviet Union. And an interesting thing is we know many people who have gone to the DPRK who are communists, and they say that there's no black market in the DPRK. Um, now, I know this is not a party school, but the party itself is going to be meeting with the, um, it's not a party, but it's called, it's a patriotic movement called Essence of Time. And I find it really interesting because it's led by this guy named Kurganyan, Sergei Kurganyan, and their website is EOT or eu.eot.su. And um, it seems like a group of forces, because we talk a lot about Zuganov and how the Communist Party was defeated, but the, the group of forces that was working at that time that were behind Yeltsin, it seems like the Russian, these are Russians themselves within Russia, kind of rallied around Yeltsin towards the end there, and they kind of brought in Putin. And we're going to find out this period of time of the late 90s in Russia, it was, uh, it seems like Russia is still the Wild West, to be honest with you. It's not everything, nothing's finished. Everything is still left open. Uh, it, it's a big question. And I think we're going to find out more from this essence of time group. And obviously, we'll be working with the Russian parties as well, the KPRF, uh, the RCWP. That's um, a fascinating question. I think we're going to find out more. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And really quickly, before I go to the next hand, I just want to go ahead and comment uh, in regards to uh, what Jake had said about American fascism. Um, while, the, while there's differences between, you know, how much power uh, fascists in North America have versus Europe, and there are differences, uh, minute differences in ideology and whatnot, um, those differences will subside at some point when they need to actually form a united fascist movement like the Axis in World War II. Um, in America, we already did see a putsch last year. 
Um, and of course, if we remember back to uh, when Hitler came to power, it was by legal means. Um, he was elected at some point. Not a lot of Nazis were elected. We see a lot of uh, really far right wing fascists that are running for different things in the United States. And um, we're not fascist yet, uh, but we can get there. And of course, it's going to be uh, very difficult to operate in that kind of environment. So I just wanted to let people know you don't think that we're ex exempt from any kind of becoming fascist. We aren't fascists yet. And anybody who says that we are is probably an ultra leftist. Um, but we are, you know, getting there. And a uh, correction to what I said in the comments, Hitler wasn't elected. He was appointed chancellor. Uh, That's right. That is correct. Um, all right. Uh, Comrade General Secretary Angelo, you want to give us some final remarks? Thank everybody for coming for this important uh, message. And remember, fascism is on the rise. Right now, as we speak, throughout the planet Earth, fascism is on the rise. And we have to see who our enemies are and who our friends are and deal with it accordingly. Thank you.